I was in the tiny Eden kitchen in my grad school apartment. I love that little kitchen. I love that little apartment. I was in grad school on a scholarship that covered just about everything. The scholarship even came with housing. The housing it came with was a bedroom in a shared building with a shared kitchen and like 25 people fresh out of undergrad. I had already done my share of group living with undergrads when I was an undergrad. I came to Chicago when I was 31 and I was not about to go back to having my own shelf in the fridge. So instead of living free, I took a stipend, a generous stipend that nonetheless did not come close to covering the cost of living in Chicago, even in a rundown grad student apartment. Money was always tight. I was working a job that I loved, two, two jobs that year actually, and things were still tight. And I, I can't remember if this was the year that I threatened my credit card company with filing bankruptcy or if that was a different winter, but it was definitely December. I sat in my kitchen and I opened a Christmas card from my cousins, Garrett and Mary. They're also pastors. And honestly, we don't know each other that well. I do know them well enough, just well enough that I was surprised by the card. The front of it was a kind of saccharine rendering of the Holy Family, like a little bit cartoony and not in a good way. No offense, Scott. It didn't seem like their aesthetic, but like I said, I don't even know them that well. I opened the card and a check fluttered out. I picked it up and when I saw that it was for $500, I burst into tears, <laughs> not tears, sobs, like <gasps> sobs. I was shocked by the violence and suddenness of it. The relief, the surprise, I cried and I cried and I read the note that Mary had written. Sorry for the cheesy card she wrote. It's what we had. I don't know if in her note she reflected on their own days in seminary or if I just projected that onto them. I do know that when I wrote them a thank you note, I told them that I very much looked forward to the day that I could make someone burst into grateful sobs by giving away such a gift. Like I said in the welcome, you can't ever really preach about Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, you definitely cannot preach about them during stewardship season. And besides stewardship season, most churches don't talk that much about money. Even during stewardship season, it's not easy to talk about money. So many people, including me, bring so much baggage to any conversation about money. Plus, I mean, at a place like this, where people seem in general to be extremely generous, what's the point? just to make people feel bad or weird. So given all that, there's not really a good time to tell this story from the early church, but it was in the heady early days right after Pentecost when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and they shared life in this joyful, radical way. They sold their possessions and gave to anybody who had need. They had the goodwill of all the people. People heard about their radical, joyful way of life, their kindness, their generosity. After all, there wasn't a needy person among them. One of the disciples, a guy called Barnabas, sold a field that he owned and brought the proceeds of that sale and laid it at the feet of the apostles. 
Barnabas is kind of a foil to Ananias and Sapphira because they also owned this property that Melissa read about. When they sold it, they brought the proceeds to lay at the apostles' feet, which I really hope is a metaphor and not some weird power trip. But when they brought it, Ananias brought only part of the proceeds. Peter knew it, called him out, and Ananias, as you now know I find funny, dropped out on the spot. And the other disciples, understandably, were terrified and some of the young men buried him. Ananias, in the book of Acts said, kept that money back with his wife's knowledge, which is important because even though we stopped the reading right after Ananias dropped dead, his wife, his wife Sapphira showed up about three hours later, probably looking for him. So Peter asked her about the sale and she lied in the same way. And then she immediately fell down on his feet and died. And you, you can see, right, why it's not a sermon, a story to preach on. It's a little, like, Old Testament-y. Like, could we get back to the part where the disciples are singing and breaking bread together and having the goodwill of all the people, not calling each other out so that they drop dead? Christians who have wanted to use this story for stewardship or otherwise have tried to wrestle it into a non-terrifying shape. The problem was not that they didn't give all the money away. The problem was that they lied. After all, if the problem is that they didn't give all their money to the common purse, well, we should have another congregational meeting. We should vote to give away all that money from the sale of the Hermitage property. I mean, the sooner the better. Or maybe the problem had to do with that having the goodwill of all the people thing. Like if people beyond the community found out about Ananias and Sapphira's wheeling and dealing, trying to look good with that all things in common piece without really doing it, maybe that would undercut the message. And if that's the case, we better make sure that we give away these mini grants and the other money in exactly the right way. We better make sure we do it with only the purest motivations and talk about it in publicly exactly right. We wouldn't want people to get the wrong idea about us. We wouldn't want to leave our young people to wrap us up and bury us in the wake of God's wrath. I don't know if this story has a non-terrifying shape. Not, I think it's probably obvious, not that I think that God may strike us down. And personally, because of the way I read the Bible, I'm not even sure that this story happened exactly the way it's written down. But Here's what I think is deeply true and real and deeply terrifying. Money kills. It holds individuals, cultures, churches sometimes in the clutches of death. The lack of money kills, you know, the towering inequity that means some people with even comparatively modest fortunes, they can't spend in a whole lifetime. But that means that there are other people who go without food or medicine or shelter or basic infrastructure like sewers and not just some other place, but here in our country, in our city. The lack of money is so demanding that it costs people years off their lives. Besides all the lack, there's the stress of running the numbers and pinching the pennies. And the simple fact is a girlfriend of mine says that you can't afford to stock up on items, but you have to go out to the store when they're on sale. You're on call. And also the love of money can kill. Hoarding, having, holding, amassing, gorging on capital. Sure, money will get you great medical care. In this country, it's the only thing that can. But the belief that money buys security or well-being, 
that can also be a death-dealing lie. Prioritizing money over relationships or community can leave a person or an organization vulnerable to isolation and loneliness, to a death-dealing lie. Peter calls it Satan. It's a lie that says that you alone ought to be enough. You alone ought to earn your wealth and worth and safety and well-being by the sweat of your brow. The first time that got said, back in the Garden of Eden, it was nothing less than a curse. Work for it all the days of your life until you return to the ground after dropping like a stone from the burden of it. The radical way of life that those early disciples were living, it came in the wake of the good news that the bonds of that curse were broken. That the lie was just that, a lie. Their shared life was marked by grace and joy, not strain or sweat or loneliness or hoarding. There wasn't a needy person among them. It took me some doing to fix my finances after grad school. The first tip came from a businesswoman turned pastor who told me I should threaten my credit card company with bankruptcy. They were suddenly very amenable to my paying down the debt at a very low rate. When that was finally done years later, I, I turned to my student loans, which I was still carrying from undergrad, which was not covered by a scholarship. Still working on student loans, I, I turned to my best friend who had taught herself a lot about personal finance. She had figured out her own savings and her debt and she had helped more than one friend figure out their finances. And that was something I never learned growing up when my parents were raising our family well below the poverty line, faking it because we lived in a church owned parsonage. We looked like we were middle class unless you looked close. I'm so grateful for my friend's help, for her lack of judgment when I shared my balances and my less than rigorous saving strategies. She's a kind, supportive friend to me and to many others. We've been friends a very long time and I love her without reservation. We know everything about each other, including some pretty bad behavior. She's never batted an eye at mine and I have never batted an eye at hers. Until when we looked at my budget together, she was surprised at how much money I give away. And, and to be clear, I do not tithe my income. I give away well less than 5% after taxes, even if you wanna get into it. So glad it's not a stewardship sermon. Anyway. My friend thought it was shocking, but she was not half as shocked as I was when I found out what she gives away, which is nothing. No money at all to anyone. I love her unreservedly, but I batted an eye. I had practice. I had a lifetime of practice giving money away. Below the poverty line or not, my parents gave money away and gave it away gleefully, which is like a lot of people living in poverty, actually. Statistically, people living in poverty give away more money. 
It's a different sermon. My parents talked at Christmas about how much we could give away. What would we be able to give away? Each year we took our presents, the cards that came with money, and we put 10% into a, into a box. And as the advent calendar ticked down, the box filled up, and we dreamed and schemed about who we could give the money to, who needed it, who had lost a job. My parents dreamed and schemed about how we could round up, how if they added a few dollars to it, we could get from like $112 to a nice even 120 My parents did not give because they were afraid God would strike them dead, although they certainly believed that story literally. They gave out of joy and a long habit, a practice, an, an exercise that built in them the muscles of giving and, and made it easy. They didn't struggle with the math or, or we did struggle with math, but only after they had given that money away. I'm so glad it's not a stewardship sermon. I, a little bit sweaty. Okay. We are in a moment as a church, maybe for the first time in our life as a church, maybe the only time in our life as a church when it is easy to give away money. We have the muscles for generosity, but now we've got a figure. We're giving away $89,000, $89,000 of which 20,000 is to be given away through these mini grants written by you. Money that doesn't come out of our own pockets before or after taxes, before or after student loans or credit cards. We just get to dream about who we can give it to, who needs it. If we can, if we're in a position to, we can round up a little bit or a lot, do what you want. Even so, Slightly more shocking than my best friend is my fellow's response to this plan that we have as a church. When he found out that we're giving away $89,000, he said, right now, there's a pandemic. The economy is terrible. And I said, I know. That's why it's a good time to give it. I didn't want to talk with him about the economy or percentages or that we have all of this other money from our history and the people who built this place or the money that we're investing or that we're in a great position financially or that we're growing or that our church is full of generous people who are so supportive of the church even now. I didn't even want to talk about the theology of it. I wanted to talk about the joy of it, the pleasure of realizing that we have something to give. The moment realizing that I have something to give, that if I plan just right, I can manage to round up a gift to a friend or to an organization that I love and want to see flourish, even now, especially now. I wanted to talk about the joy of times in my life, not that many so far. I look forward to more when I have been able to give someone a gift that feels significant to them, enough to make them gasp or, or maybe even cry. I wanna talk about how there's an easiness to it if you've had practice and we get to practice, how it seems so much harder if you never do. I wanted to talk about how giving it away takes away some of money's death dealing power. This lie that we're each in it for ourselves alone, struggling, sweating, the curse of that lie has been broken. 
And we ourselves are living in the wake of the good news, good news that frees up frees us from all kinds of bondage and death and fear. It even frees me from judging my best friend who has so much to give and does. We get all of us now together to live a radical life marked by that joy and by so much grace. <laughs>